Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Good morning. It's so good to have you with us. I'm glad you're here to celebrate Mother's Day today, and we want to just wish a happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. It's a special day, and we hate not being together to celebrate big days like this, but I'm thankful that you can join us online, and we welcome you in, whether you are in your home or your car or wherever you may be checking this out. We're glad that you're with us today. We have been journeying through the Gospel of Mark together. We're not hitting every chapter and every verse. We're asking people to read two chapters during the week, and then I'm tackling one part uh, in those two chapters. And so today we're going to be hitting Mark chapter eight. This is kind of the turning point of Mark's gospel. This is midway through the gospel, and we're going to be looking at a passage in Mark chapter eight. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, we'd love for you to join us. If you don't have a Bible as you're watching, you can, uh, can follow along on the screen. We'll have the text up there. But here's how I want to start. When you have an important question to ask someone, where you ask it, can be almost as important as the question itself that you're asking. Like nobody does giant business deals in the bathroom, right? You take someone to a boardroom or you take them out to a nice dinner. Uh, you do something to make a business deal in a right setting. And so when you have an important question to ask or if you want to propose something, you do it in the right place at the right time. Uh, case in point, when I was dating Heather and we were talking about getting married, she kept telling me, when you propose, if you're going to do that, Make sure you do not do that in a public setting. I don't want to be proposed to at a Braves baseball game or something like that. Like she would tell me over and over, I have no interest in looking up on the scoreboard and seeing Heather, will you marry me in big letters uh, and then look over and see me with a ring in one hand and a bucket of popcorn in the other. She did not want that. And so uh, that was kind of part of the deal was don't ask me to marry you in a big public setting. It will be an immediate no. And so I didn't ask her that question that way. And I'm glad I didn't because several years later, I experienced something that helped me know why she didn't want to do that. My brother and one of my best friends uh, went to a San Antonio Spurs basketball game. They were playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. This was LeBron James' first time being in Cleveland. Uh, and so it was Tim Duncan, and uh, versus LeBron James, great game, and we were there, and in the middle of the game at halftime, there was an entertainment piece that was going on, and the uh, mascot for the Spurs was at center court, and he was doing some stuff, and then he brought this girl out onto court with him, and she was part of the, the entertainment, and she was doing some different things, and as we're sitting there watching this happen, the girl starts to do something, and when she turns around, the mascot has taken the helmet off, the head off of the mascot, and it's actually her fiance. 
And he's down on one knee with a ring in his hand. And she, you know, just looks surprised. And you're thinking as the crowd, we're all cheered and excited. And you think she's going to say yes, and they're going to hug and kiss, and it's all going to go well. That is not what happened. She got frustrated, turned around, and ran. And he's standing at half court with a ring in his hand. And everybody just started laughing, right? And so he asked the wrong way. Right question, wrong place. So why am I telling you these stories this morning? Because when we get to Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus is going to ask his disciples the most important question ever. And he's going to do it in a specific setting. And so I want you to look at this one verse with me, and then we're going to follow along as we continue down through this passage. But here's what Mark 8, 27 says. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? So Jesus took his disciples to the northernmost part of Israel. He's been hanging out primarily during his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Now he's going to take them to the northernmost part of Israel, to Caesarea Philippi. It's about 35 to 40 miles north of Galilee where Jesus has been hanging out. And he takes them there to this location that has an enormous temple and an enormous rock wall that's built out. And it's a place of worship for idols. It's a place where the Greeks and the Romans had implemented uh, idol worship. It was primarily a place for the worship of the Caesars as gods. And so in this location on the top of the hilltop, there is a gleaming marble temple. And at this temple, there's statues, there's busts of these gods that are all over the place, built into the rock wall and in the, uh, the mouth of these uh, little caves that they've kind of created. Then inside of this giant rock wall is carved out almost an entrance like a cave. And what you would go into that cave and do is that you would celebrate the worship of one of the, the gods there, the god Pan. This was specifically a place for people who worshiped Pan. He was the god of shepherds, and he was also the god of fertility. So if you wanted to have uh, blessings for your, your marriage, to have children, you would come and sacrifice to Pan. If you were a shepherd and you wanted your flock to succeed and do well, you would come and make a sacrifice to Pan. Here's how you would do that. You would take a sheep or a lamb, and you would throw it into the mouth of this cave. And down in the depths of this cave was a body of water that was the primary source that fed the Jordan River. And so it was just full of dead animals, dead carcasses of sheep. And that was how they would sacrifice to Pan. So you've got this worship of the Caesars, the worship of the god Pan. You've got this location. And here's what's fascinating about this. The entrance to that, temp, uh, to that uh, cave was called the gates of hell. They literally believed that this was a place that led to the deepest parts of the earth, to hell itself. And, and so when you saw this, this was a place of spiritual darkness. This was a place that people would come and worship idols. And, and it was set up to be a place for the gods to be acknowledged. But Jesus brings his disciples here, and they would have been completely uncomfortable. As Jewish people coming to this location, a center of Roman idol worship, the disciples would have been completely uncomfortable. But it's in this setting that he asked the disciples the most important question of their lives. And so he simply asks, first, 
Hey, let me ask you guys a question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus has been around enormous amounts of people, crowds of people everywhere, people that have been following Jesus all over the region, all through the territories. And, they, and Jesus asks his disciples, hey, when you guys are around the crowds, who are they saying that I am? And so look at verse 28. It says, they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, that's pretty good company to be in. First of all, he says, you know, with the crowds, when we talk to the crowds, they say, you're John the Baptist, which is a little weird because John and Jesus were cousins and they were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. People saw them together. Jesus had been baptized by John in the Jordan River. So they had known one another and were in proximity with one another. And so maybe what the disciples are saying is that people think you're in the same essence as John, or maybe you have the spirit of John. And when John left and died, you inherited his kind of ministry or his spirit. So maybe that's kind of what they're saying, but they imply that he's like John the Baptist. And then they say, well, but other people in the crowds, when we listen to them talk, they say, you're like Elijah. Now, Elijah was the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah is the one that the Jewish people believe and are waiting for to come back as a pre-runner, precursor of the Messiah himself. And so, in fact, you're going to see John, or excuse me, you're going to see Jesus have a conversation with his disciples around this idea. They ask him, hey, why, do, why does the people say that, that before the Messiah comes, Elijah must come? And Jesus actually says, Elijah has come. It was John. John had the spirit of Elijah. He was coming in the power and the spirit of Elijah. So there's this idea that's going that Elijah must come first. And, and some say, maybe, maybe you're not the Messiah. Maybe you're Elijah. You're the front runner of the Messiah. So that's who they thought Jesus could be. Then there's still others that say, okay, you're not John. You're not Elijah, but you're one of the prophets. You're kind of in that vein of a prophetic voice. The people of Israel have been waiting for a prophet to speak for hundreds of years. From the close of the Old Testament until the time of John and Jesus, there had been no prophetic voice in Israel. And so they're listening to Jesus and they're saying, you're one of the prophets. You've got this prophetic voice. You speak out the words of God and the truth of God. And we listen to you and we learn from you. And so for the people who were around Jesus, they would say, you fall in this vein. You're Elijah or you're John or, or you're one of the prophets. And so that's kind of who we think you are. And if you were to ask people in our culture today, maybe you were to ask someone in your workplace or you ask someone in your neighborhood or somebody that you're close to in your family, that you would just ask the question, hey, who do you say Jesus is? People have answers for that question. There are a lot of ways that people think about and believe about Jesus. Some of those is that Jesus was a good moral teacher. He's in line with Gandhi and Muhammad or uh, Confucius, and he's just somebody who had moral teachings, good things to say. We should maybe take into consideration what he said and build our lives around those teachings, but he's not necessarily God and he's not the Messiah. He was just a good moral teacher. The things he said, we should apply to our lives. We should live them out. They're good for us. And that's how we think about Jesus. Some people believe that. Other people would think about Jesus and say that he's all love all the time. 
And so they see Jesus and they go, he was so welcoming, so loving, so kind. He accepted everyone. He had no problem with anyone or anything that anyone did. Uh, There was nothing that was an issue to Jesus. He was just love, just acceptance, just grace all the time. And to an extent, that's true. Jesus did love everyone. Jesus did accept everyone. But Jesus also was full of truth. And Jesus would tell people to leave their lives of sin. And and so when we have that view of Jesus that he's just love, he's just acceptance, he's just grace, then we miss the fact that Jesus was also just. He also practiced justice. He also practiced truth. And that he would tell people to stop sinning, to leave that life, and to follow the ways of God. So some people would say Jesus is just love all the time. Then there's other people who fall into a category and they go, you know what, Jesus, uh, he's just a crutch that you've developed. Uh, He's not the Messiah. He's not a savior. He's not God. You have made Jesus as Christians. You've created this image of Jesus to make him something he never said he was. He's just a crutch for you. You lean on him in this religious expression because through that you don't have answers to explain other things. You don't want to give in to science or you don't want to give in to reality that we believe. And so you use Jesus as a crutch. You just prop yourself up on him. When you're going through difficult times, you need something to help you feel better. So you lean on Jesus. He's just a crutch for you. There are a lot of people who believe that about us as Christians that Jesus isn't a Messiah. He's not a savior. He's not God. He's just something we've created. He was a real person, but we've turned him into something he never intended himself to be. And we use him to crutch ourselves up. So that's another way that people think about Jesus. And then finally, I think there's another way that people think about Jesus, that they consider him like a genie in a bottle. Right, like he's there for us when we get in trouble or when we need something, we rub the lamp, out pops Jesus, and he's supposed to grant our wishes for us. That's one of the ways that people think about Jesus. He's, he's kind of this deity that I keep in my pocket and I pull him out when I need him and then his power comes to work and then when I'm finished with that, I put him back and I control my life. So Jesus is only there to make me feel better about me or to help me with stuff that I need, to bail me out when I'm in trouble. And that's the way people think about Jesus. And so Jesus comes back to this question to his disciples. He says, all right, I asked you who the crowds say that I am. Now let me turn the question and make it more personal. Look at the verse 29 and how he asks his disciples. He says, but what about you? He asked them who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Verse 30, then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Right? Like Jesus asked this question. What about you guys? I know what the crowds think. Thanks for giving me those details and that explanation. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter absolutely nails the answer. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. Matthew's gospel actually records Peter saying, you are the son of the living God. Now, in case this goes over your head this morning or you've missed it, you're not paying close attention enough. Here's what I want you to get today. This is the most important question that you'll ever face. This is the question for all of us. This is the question 
Jesus asked his disciples, and it's the same question that's being posed to you and I today. Who do you say Jesus is? And so if you're taking notes this morning, just write this down or fill in the blanks on our app. The most important question for every person on earth to answer is, who do I say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? How do you answer that question? You're either going to have to put him in the category of a good moral teacher, a prophet, uh, a genie in a bottle, or you're going to have to say Jesus is God in flesh who came to be the savior of the world, the Messiah, who's given his life to redeem me and save me from my sins. So what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? This is a deeply personal question. This is the kind of question that gets into our heart and it should rattle around in our brains. I hope you'll be asking yourself this question over and over again. It's a question that causes us to really think about the fullness of our life. In fact, there's two things that I would give you in this this morning if you're taking notes again. Why is this question so important? Well, number one, because what we believe about Jesus determines how we live out our days. What you believe about Jesus will determine how you live. Listen, if you just see Jesus as a genie in a bottle that's there to get you out of trouble, you're going to do whatever you want and you're going to be in charge of your life until you absolutely get in trouble to a case where you can't pull yourselves out of the mud and the mire that you're in and you're going to then call for Jesus and go, help, help get me out of this trouble. Right? If you see Jesus as just a good moral teacher, a good, you know, a good guy that I should pattern my life around who he was, then you're going to be a very legalistic person who's going to just say, I've got to always follow these rules and these teachings. It's going to determine how you live your life. So here's the second thing. What we believe about Jesus also determines our eternal destiny. Because again, if you don't see Jesus as God and as someone that you need to surrender your life to and you need to accept his forgiveness from your sins, then you're going to spend eternity separated from God. Because the Bible's clear that Jesus said about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father unless they come through me. You need a relationship with Jesus, surrendering control of your life to him, asking forgiveness of your sins to be placed in his relationship and in his hands to bring you to his father. And if you don't have that, you'll spend eternity separated from God. If you do have a relationship with Jesus, and if you do know him as savior, not you just have head knowledge about him, but you've surrendered your life to him, then the Bible would say that we would spend eternity with God forever and ever in the presence of Jesus, our King and our Savior. So there's more on the line here than just having the right answer to the test. Like I know my kids in school, they love to get things right. And I love that things are so different now than they were when I was in school. My kids take most of their tests and do things online. And so they immediately know, I got this answer wrong. I got this answer right. I know how I did on the test. I would have to wait sometimes days or weeks to find out how I did on a test. And it would drive me crazy. Like I would get ulcers as a four-year-old, <laughs> not a four-year-old, 14-year-old maybe. Uh, just gonna go in. You know, I would just be so super nervous about, did I do right, did I do? And, and it was always about, did I have the right answers to the test? And, and Jesus wants us to know here, this is not about just having the right answer. When you ask the question, who do I say Jesus is, coming up with the right answer is not all Jesus is about. He wants us to build our lives around who 
he is. And so Matthew's gospel actually details a little more of what Peter said in his answer to Jesus. If you look on the screen or turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 18, same conversation, same setting, different perspective. This is Matthew writing. He says, Jesus is talking, but what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, remember, let's think back to the setting where Jesus is having this conversation. There's a giant rock wall. There's a cave that goes down into this water, this body of water that the people called the gates of hell. And so Jesus asks the question, they're in a location where there's the worship of false gods of dead men, right? Like Julius Caesar had been uh, considered a son of the gods or a god himself. Two years after he died, the emperor made Julius Caesar a god in his death. And so in this place where people are worshiped, dead men are worshiped as God, Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. We're in this setting, in this location where people are worshiping dead men, and you're the son of the living God. You're not a dead God, you're a living God. And then Jesus tells him, you're absolutely right, Peter. Blessed are you because you've made the right confession. And then Jesus tells him, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And remember, the giant rock wall that forms the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus says, on this rock, Peter, the confession of what you just said, I'll build my church that I am the son of the living God. Anyone who professes me as God will have life and will be a part of my church. And so he asks him to come in. And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. When you have a city or an area that you gate up, the desire is to be defensive. You want to keep people out or maybe you want to keep your kids in the gate, right? So you've got this defensive barrier. And Jesus says, look, hell is about defense. They're trying to keep everyone in. They're trying to keep the kingdom of God out. And so he says, I've come to bring my kingdom and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus has sent his church on a mission that's offensive. We are to storm the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus to rescue people out of darkness and death and sin and to help them know that there's a savior who loves them. God never intended his creation to be lost to hell. He wants us to be with him forever. And so Jesus came to this earth on a rescue mission. He comes as the Messiah, the savior of the world, who's come to rescue people from sin and death and hell and the grave. And so when we think about Jesus, what he's doing here, Jesus is coming as a conquering king to liberate people from the grip of sin. That's why he's come to you. He wants to liberate you. Your sinfulness does not have to be the thing that determines your life. Jesus Christ can change you. He can make you new. He can create you over again in his image to be like him, to be saved by him. 
And so when we look around at the earth, we see the brokenness. We know that things aren't like they should be. We know that the world and our lives are a mess. It's a wreck. And so we need a savior. We need someone who's going to come in and fix what's broken. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's the confession that Peter makes. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. But then it's fascinating what Jesus does here. After Peter answered Jesus' question, giving the correct answer, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus looks at him and goes, that's exactly right. Don't tell anyone. Right? And you, you look at that and you go, why in the world would Jesus, isn't that like what we should be telling everyone? You're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Let's go make that known everywhere. And Jesus's answer to the disciples in this moment is that's a great answer, guys. Don't tell anybody that. You go, why in the world not? And we're going to look at the reasons for that in just a minute. You're going to see this play out more. But the main reason is, is that Jesus knew his disciples didn't have everything right in their minds about what the Messiah was, what he was there to do, why he had come. They wanted a conquering, liberating king to come and rescue the Jewish people from the grip of Rome and to reestablish the kingdom like David and like Solomon. They were looking for a kingdom to be set up. They were looking for a Messiah who would be a liberator from the grips of Rome. And Jesus goes, guys, you don't know right now who the Messiah really is, what my mission is, what my job is. So it, because you don't fully get it, don't tell people. And that's a good way to live, right? Like we see this all the time. Just open up Facebook after the sermon today and just see what people are saying. They say things and espouse things they have no idea if it's true about or not. We've got more conspiracy theories floating around in the world than ever before. Everybody has an answer. Everybody's an expert. Everybody's a genius about certain topics. And we just throw things out, whether we know if it's right or not. We hear something that we agree with and we just share it with everybody. Yep, this is right. This is the truth. This is, this is reality. And Jesus would say to, about him to his disciples, look, until you know the truth about who I am and what I'm here for, don't share it. Don't click the button. Keep it to yourself. Do some more research. Listen to more of my teaching. Find out who I am. Find out what I'm doing, what I'm here for. And so we see this come true as we get deeper into this verse, into this chapter. Mark 8, 31 through 33. It says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so for the first time, as Mark's gospel is unfolding, as Mark is telling us the story of Jesus, for the very first time, as, as the disciples have been following him now for a couple of years, and they've gotten to this place where they feel like they know Jesus. They're excited about him being the Messiah. They can't wait to crown him as king. Now Jesus, for the first time, starts to say, the son of man must die. And they go, that is a mind-blowing statement. Because they, again, think that Jesus is there to set up a kingdom. And when Jesus starts talking about death, it infuriates Peter. 
He goes, wait, I just said a second ago, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, you're the one we've been waiting for, and that's not my view of what the Messiah does. The Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah reigns. He comes as king. He comes in power. He comes in glory. That's what you're here for. You're here to liberate us from Rome. You're the Messiah. Didn't you just hear me tell you that? And so Peter pulls Jesus aside. Can you imagine that setting? Like, there's a lot of things I want to see on like a video board in heaven of the past events. This is one of them. I want to see what it would have been like for Peter to grab Jesus by the arm, pull him aside and go, what are you talking about? You need to stop this. This is not how politicians speak in an election year. We're trying to get you to king and you're trying to say you're going to die. Like, stop. That, that's not what we talk about. You're not running the right campaign here, Jesus. And Peter all of a sudden becomes a campaign manager who thinks he knows better than Jesus how to run things. And, and I imagine on the backside, the, the disciples are watching this event, saucer eyes. Their eyes are big. They're watching Peter rebuke Jesus. No one's ever done that before. And Jesus, it says that he looked and he turned and he saw his disciples. And I'm sure that he saw their confused look on his face or on their faces. And so Jesus, when he sees the disciples, he starts to talk to Peter. And it says, Peter rebuked Jesus. Now Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Now listen, I don't know if anyone's ever called you Satan before. That is never a good thing. Like if somebody says, get behind me, Satan, you're in big trouble. They have really got a beef with you. And Jesus in this moment goes, you... Peter, have the spirit of Satan in you and you have in mind earthly things, not the things of God. And Jesus has to correct Peter's views. He says, listen, your concerns are all human concerns. What are the things that we are concerned with as humans? We want to build our kingdom we want to bring peace. We want to cure disease. We want to, to build empires. We want to have everything figured out. We want harmony, right? We want to eradicate evil from the world. These are human concerns. And Jesus goes, there's, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are things we should strive for. But there's a bigger picture. He goes, you've got human concerns. You don't have in mind the concerns of God. God has something bigger. He wants to save people from their sins. He wants to establish an eternal kingdom. He wants to bring peace and harmony and eliminate racism and eliminate prejudice and eliminate disease in an eternal scope. But it comes through dealing with our heart condition. He goes, you guys want to do this to just make the world a better place. God wants to come and he wants to change people's lives and make eternity better. He wants to bring his kingdom to this earth. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our father in heaven, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're meant for that. And so for those who get it, you're following after Jesus and you go, I, I get it. I'm one of those people that understands Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's come for eternal things. He wants to change our hearts. I get it. And I want to be a follower of Jesus that really does things the Jesus way. I want to have not human concerns, but God's concerns. I want that. And so Jesus goes on and in the next part of the passage, he tells us what it looks like to really be a Christ follower. So look at this with me, verse 34 through 38. 
Then he called the crowd to him. He's just rebuked Peter. The disciples have been watching. He says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. So everybody draws in close. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what good can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him or of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So the question we started by asking this morning, the most important question ever, is a question of life and death. And it gets even more clarity here because Jesus starts talking about his death and he starts talking about our lives and how we follow him. And here's the things that he says. If you're writing some things down, taking notes this morning, if you say Jesus is the Messiah, here's what it looks like to follow him. First, you have to deny yourself. Then you have to take up your cross and you've got to follow Jesus. Those are the steps that it takes for us. Deny yourself. Say, I'm not in charge of my life. I don't have the rule and the reign over my life anymore. The things that I want, my dreams, my ambitions, my goals, I want to lay them down for Jesus' sake. And I want to make him king. I'll deny myself to give Jesus the rightful place of rule and reign in my life. And then he says, how do you do that? Deny yourself and take up your cross. And for the disciples and the crowd, when they're hearing this and listening to this, the cross in our context and our culture is something we wear on a necklace. It's a symbol for us about what Jesus has done to bring us life. But for them, when they thought about a cross, they thought about an instrument of death. And so the disciples would have been looking at this and saying, if I'm going to follow after Jesus, then I have to daily take up my cross. I've got to die to myself every day. I've got to be willing to go to the point of death to follow Jesus. I've got to give up my life and I've got to lay it down. I've got to take up this instrument of death and carry it on my back just like Jesus would. And I've got to say to be with Jesus is worth dying for myself to have him. And then Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Come be near me. Do what I do. Stay in close proximity. Be about the kingdom of God. Follow me. And so we have to ask ourselves the question right now, what does it look like to follow Jesus in our current context? Our, our world has really shrunken lately. It's gotten down really small. Most of us are kind of stuck in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in a very small place. There's not a lot of travel going on right now. And so when we say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? How does, how does he ask us to follow him in these days? I think he would break it down and say, the first place that I want you to follow is just in your neighborhood. I want you to follow me right where you live. Probably you're like me. You've been spending a lot more time with your neighbors than ever before. I hope that's been the case. Uh, there's going to be a, a graph that comes up on your screen and we're going to share this with you. We're going to put this out on Facebook and on our website, but I'd love to challenge you to think about what it looks like to reach your neighbors. 
what it looks like to take the gospel to them. And so here's just a simple tool you can use just to think about those people who live in close proximity around you and to ask some questions. What are their names? Do you know your neighbors? How can you introduce yourself to them? What are their occupations? What do they do? What's something that they're passionate about? What's something that drives them? What would they say they love? How do you get to know your neighbors? And so we want you in the next week to two weeks to start using this as a tool and as a challenge to say, who are my neighbors? What do I know about them? We've just seen one of our neighbors have a a young baby, have a baby this past week. Uh, Another one of our neighbors we just found out is going to be moving. So we're going to get some new neighbors. We want to get to know them. We've got opportunity in our neighborhood to build relationships. And the reason that we want to do that is to have gospel conversations that we want our relationships to grow and develop and build to the point that we can have conversations like this. Hey, who do you say Jesus is? That you can ask people, what does it mean to you to follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? And so as you get to know people, as you build relationship with your neighbors, as you earn their trust to have conversation with them, make them some brownies, take them something to eat, Mow their yard for them. If there's a need that they have, try to step up and meet that need. If you've got elderly neighbors who need grocery shopping done or, or something done in their yard or around their home, how do you step up and, and meet those needs? And as you do that, how do you jump into spiritual conversations? That's what we want to challenge you to do. Find out who your neighbors are. Find out how you can love them and serve them. And then we pray that you'll start asking God for open doors to enter into gospel conversations. Here's the second thing. Where's Jesus calling you to follow him right now? Andy alluded to this in the announcements earlier, and you're gonna hear more details about this next week. We're gonna really flesh this out some more next week, but we wanna follow Jesus where it comes to local missions. Our global missions uh, have unfortunately had to be canceled this year. The sending element of that. We still are supporting missionaries all around the world. We have three different families that we support financially who are on the front lines in missionary locations, uh, providing resources to share the gospel with people. We're hearing stories from them all the time about disciples that are being made, how people are walking with Jesus, following Jesus, introducing others to Jesus. It's incredible to hear the stories that are going on all over the world. And thanks to your generous support, And when you tithe and you give, we're able to continue supporting and funding things like that. So thank you. But here's what we're going to be doing. Instead of sending people this summer to Nicaragua and Ecuador and El Salvador and some of the different trips we had planned, we're going to focus more on local missions. What can we do right here? How can we serve? How can we love? How can we be a blessing to Kingsport? Now, here's the reality. We should always be doing that. Local missions should be the heartbeat of the church. Global missions get a lot of attention because we're called by Jesus to go into all the world, but we start right here at home. And so this summer, we're going to be finding ways to encourage our church to get engaged and involved with local missions. And I hope you'll find ways that you can join us to do that. So here's how I want to close this morning. If you don't know Jesus, if this greatest question ever is posed to you and you're sitting there going, and I don't know how I'd answer the question When I'm asked, who do I say Jesus is? I really don't know the answer to that. Well, a couple of things that I want to leave you with. One, thanks for joining us and listening. I hope and pray you'll read the gospels. Read Mark. 
Read Matthew's account of the Gospels. Find out for yourself who Jesus is. Look intently into what he says about himself. See what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. And start answering that question. Who do I say Jesus is? If you've come to a place, secondly, that you would say, I didn't know how to answer that question until now, but the Spirit of God is impressed upon me that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one who died on the cross to save me of my sins. He was buried in a tomb. He came back to life, and he lives today. He's alive and well in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he's inviting you to have a relationship with him. And if you want to invite Jesus into your life today, you can do that from the privacy of your home. You can do that right where you are. We would just encourage you to simply bow your knee to Jesus. Confess that you're a sinner in need of his grace. Accept his forgiveness for your sins through the work that he did on the cross. And then commit from this day forward to live for him, to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily, and to follow Jesus. And here's the best way you can do that. Get into relationship with other people who are already following him. This is called discipleship. We want to be disciples who make disciples. We don't want just people converting to Christianity and then just staying kind of nominal in their faith or casual in their faith. We want people who are going to be like Jesus's disciples, men who changed the world. Once they figured out who Jesus was, they changed the world because they took that gospel message public. For a time, Jesus said, it's great that you know I'm the Christ, the son of God. Don't tell anybody. After his death and resurrection, when they figured out who he was and what his mission really was, he said, now go tell the whole world. And that's our call. We want to be disciples of Jesus who deny ourselves, follow him every single day. And so I pray right where you are that you'll invite Jesus to come and be your savior. If you do that, at the end of the broadcast, there's gonna be a screen that comes up. There's gonna be a number that you can text. We would love for you just to text us and let us know, I wanna be a Christian. And we'll get in touch with you and we'll walk through what it looks like to be in relationship with God and in relationship with others. Thanks so much for being with us today. Let me pray for us as we close our time together. Heavenly Father, We love you so much. God, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters out there who are Christians and who have committed to you. God, some of us are in very different stages of life. We've kind of made that commitment, but we've not really been following. We're not dying daily to ourselves. And so I pray, God, that each of us would take that next step in our faith to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you wholeheartedly. Father, for others, they're just learning today the answer to this greatest question that's ever been asked, who do I say Jesus is? And some people right now are making the decision and the commitment to say Jesus is the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He's the one that's come to give me freedom, to set me free from my sin, to set me free from my addictions, to set me free from my, uh, my despair. And God, I just pray that you'll liberate people in their souls today, that they'll find that freedom that's necessary. And then God, that they'll contact us to let us know that they've become a Christian so we can talk with them through some next steps and how to follow after Jesus with their hearts and their lives for the rest of their lives. Lord, we love you. We praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey, again, I just want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. I hope all of you have a blessed day and that you see the fruit of God working in your life, that the Spirit of God continues to draw you into relationship with Jesus that deepens every day and that you are able to see His hand at work in you and it's changing you moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. I love you. Have a great day. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.